Welcome to Visionaries, a podcast that demonstrates you don't need a lot of eyesight to be blessed with a lot of vision. Here, we salute the visionaries, the people that inspire us, and we tell you their stories and hopefully help you out as you navigate your day-to-day lives. I am, as always, your humble correspondent and host. My name is John Steinberg sitting alongside my amazingly talented host. You guessed it, back at it again, Santino. I am here again with John for another great episode of Visionaries. We're gonna jump into our first segment here, John, words to live by. And this week I actually got to choose the quote. So the quote that I picked for you guys today uh, is from Walt Whitman. And the quote sa- uh, the, the quote reads, keep your face always towards the sun and the shadows will fall behind you. Now, John, when you hear that quote, what do you think about what does that invoke in you? And, you know, how, how, how do you feel about the quote in general? I think we could translate it as don't give up. Don't ever give up, to paraphrase Jim Belvano. There are innumerable moments when it's easier to turn back than it is to persevere and continue on forward. And a quote like this from Mr. Leaves of Grass himself, Walt Whitman, helps to remind us that though the future may be uncertain and we may not know all of the answers about what's coming our way, it's a healthier approach to go forward than it is to ruminate on what you've already experienced in the past. Keep looking forward, avoid looking back, don't waddle in your difficulties, challenges, remember, what it is that you want out of life or apply this quote to any aspect of life, be it your professional dealings, things on the personal side, your belief system in any and every case, there are significant advantages to facing down the uncertain future in front of you, as opposed to continuing reminiscing and recalling the past. Definitely. And I I think the other thing he's trying to say is he's almost creating almost like a divide in terms of people that are optimistic and pessimistic in terms of keeping your face towards the sun. It's almost like focusing on the light, focusing on the good things in life and letting all the quote unquote darkness and the shadows kind of fall behind you. He's saying that you know, again, people that are focusing on the light, they're, they're the optimistic ones. They're the ones that just focus on, you know, maybe it's a goal you have or something you want to achieve, anything like that. And then people that don't allow the, the, the darkness to kind of just pass them by the bad times in life to just not, to, to not knock them off course almost. They're the people that kind of are more pessimistic and they, and they focus on the bad things in life. The other part, you know, and the other way you could look at it too is just, Again, not getting rid of the pessimism and the optimism is just people that focus on the light at the end of the tunnel. And that's the initial thing that I thought of when hearing like, uh, you know, keeping your face always towards the sun is that you're you're a person that focuses on the light at the end of the tunnel. Again, there's going to be times in life where you get knocked down. There's going to be times in life when you have to deal with, again, proverbial shadows, you know, darkness, whatever, whatever word you want to use. There's going to be times when things like that hit you and just things, bad things happen in life in general, keeping your face towards the sun, towards the light at the end of the tunnel, 
being able to see the good things that will eventually come, that's what's important. I think that's what he was trying to say uh, through this quote. And moreover, with Whitman specifically, he's someone who battled immense censorship during his day. When he put out Leaves of Grass, it was soundly dismissed by a number of social critics of the era. They thought it was obscene. They thought it was offensive. They were not comfortable with his depiction of sensuality. And even though this was not an episode of Euphoria, there still were enough components that annoyed and really found disfavor with critics of the era. So rather than meditate on the response to Leaves of Grass and the fact that it didn't debut to absolute universal acclaim, he chose to look forward. He chose to concentrate on everything that was to come in the evaluation of his work. And when you know it, now we're 150 years on from the publication of Leaves of Grass and no one, absolutely no one, even brings up the controversy anymore. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, again, the quote from from me picking it, I kind of just went through inspiring quotes and kind of looked through to see what I thought would be interesting again, just to analyze and just talk about. And this quote really kind of struck me. And I don't know if it was because maybe just in in my life, maybe that there have been times where I've gone through things and I that this quote kind of just stuck with me. And I know even again, for you, I feel like this quote can be applicable to your life as well from an outsider perspective. I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like, again, you know, when you told the story of kind of when I got to interview you uh, in one of our previous episodes and we got to kind of hear about the you know, listeners got to hear about, you know, your moment of kind of, you know, finding out that you had retinitis pigmentosa and that whole journey of, you know, going blind and then having to kind of readjust the way you lived your life, essentially. I feel like this quote can almost be applicable to you as well. I don't know. Again, don't want to speak for you, but I just think that face, you know, keeping your face towards the light, focusing on the good things in life. I feel like you've done a really good job of that. So that's, I just wanted to say that. Well, thanks, Sid, you know? Yeah. Thanks, man. Um, No, I mean, really, it's, okay, in the corniest analysis possible, yeah, (laughs) glass half full versus glass half empty. Exactly. So, Why focus on the things that I can't control that are beyond the scope of my ability to manage them? Mm -hmm. Instead, what can I do? What can I bring to the table? These are the things that have steered me and millions upon millions of folks toward their ultimate goals in life. So don't worry about those shadows behind you. Focus on the sun in front of you. Definitely, definitely. We'll move on to our next segment, Handprints Hall of Fame. And again, I got to pick the person we were going to induct today. The person I chose to induct into our Handprints Hall of Fame. And again, like John always says, when he introduces this segment, uh, picture we're in front of the Grauman's Chinese Theater. Um, you know, you're the, this this person is kneeling down, putting their hands in front of the uh, Chinese Theater. We have decided to induct. Jake Olson, former USC football player, and actually the first ever, first ever and only college football player to uh, to be to play blind, essentially. So we're inducting Jake Olson to the Hamperts Hall of Fame. John, if you want to talk about talk a little bit about Jake Olson's story and you know kind of why we wanted to induct him today. Sure. So Jake was diagnosed as a baby with a visual impairment. Uh, I believe it was retinoblastoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, this led to 
the loss of one of his eyes. Doctors monitored the situation with Jake's eyesight and determined that at the age of 12, he was in danger of actually losing his life if they didn't immediately perform an operation to remove the other, uh, the other eye. So that's what happened. And at the age of 12, he was completely blind. Now, Jake was somebody, he's actually from Huntington Beach, um, the city to the north of Newport where I grew up. And he's someone who grew up like a ton of families that I know, grew up going to USC games. He was a Trojan kid through and through. And he always aspired to one day attend the University of Southern California. He had played football, golf, and some other sports and wanted to continue doing that despite the loss of his eyesight in totality. Now, ultimately, there was a story that was aired on ESPN where Shelly Smith profiled Jake as he helped cheer on the Trojans. He actually rang the bell next to Pete Carroll at the height of the USC dynasty in the mid 2000s. He played at Cal Lutheran in Orange County and ultimately was able to earn a spot on the Trojans football team. His crowning achievements. And I had a chance to listen to a really great podcast uh, with Jake. It was called Heavy Hitters. It was a two-parter. And he talked at length about what it was like as a long snapper snapping the ball under center to the kicker for an extra point against Western Michigan. This is such a Rudy story. It's actually, it's even better than Rudy. Not only was he able to help out his fellow Trojans in assisting on the PAT, he did it again in a second game against Oregon State uh, later in the season. As you mentioned, he is the only blind collegiate football player, and his story is utterly inspiring. I guarantee there will be a movie at some point in the future or like a, a documentary. Like, yeah, like, like an eight episode limited series. It's yeah, just, um, it's gotta be something yeah, on him. Yeah. It's an unbelievable story. Uh, he has written an acclaimed book about his experiences. It's called Open Your Eyes. And he is a really wonderful source for inspiration. Um, he has one of those classic radio style voices and is able to articulate what happened to him, how he has been able to navigate his own challenges and beat the odds. Yeah, definitely. And I actually got a chance to interview him at Radio Row when, we, when I was there during the Super Bowl press week. And I wanted to kind of talk about just one thing that he touched on during the interview. And I asked him about, you know, that, that moment when you kind of run out on the field and obviously he couldn't see, but I asked him about, you know, his, maybe his other senses kind of taking over where maybe he, you know, hearing the roar of the crowd, like chanting his name, maybe hearing his name over the, uh, over the loudspeaker, um, maybe being able to like even just smell the grass, like just being out there on the football field and how he was able to take that in without being able to see. And, you know, he, he did say to me that hearing the crowd hear his name, hearing his name announced when he entered the game, just hearing all of that really kind of brought it full circle for him and really made him feel like he was a part of the team. He, it made him feel like he belonged, which I think is really what 
payment everybody wants maybe that they're that are in the disabled communities that they want to be treated like everybody else and he, in that moment that's what he felt and again for you to sorry for for him to be able to snap two successful extra points and again be any position of football is hard to be a long snapper and to get that rhythm and motion down without being able to see and to snap two successful extra points in games where there where there's grown you know 250 pound defensive linemen and you know corners all these people running at, running at you essentially and you're able to to achieve that and you're you know you're not you he wasn't afraid he didn't give up he was a just to be able to do that is utterly utterly incredible and you know he was an athletic kid growing up i again he told me this in the interview as well that growing up he was always an athletic kid and that he didn't let you know the blindness stop him from doing what he wanted to do and he made a decision that being blind was not going to take away the thing that he loved which, which was football and no matter what it took, he knew that he was going to play football in some capacity. And he, you know, he talked about obviously playing wide receiver or playing quarterback. That was pretty, that was, that was not feasible anymore. That wasn't going to happen. He had to kind of let go of that dream. But like we talked about in the first segment, he focused on what he could control and he ended up finding the long snapping position in high school. And he kind of just kept practicing at it, you know, and implemented repetition into his into routine with the position and eventually like you know we know now he got to the point where he was a long snapper for his childhood favorite team which is even crazier the usc trojans and again it's incredible story it's it's inspiring to anybody and anybody and everybody who would listen who would read up on his story i would highly recommend doing it because it is just incredible to see somebody with a visual impairment accomplished what he accomplished. And the last thing I wanna say, he did actually with, I believe um, it was one of his uh, college friends that he, that he met, at, that he met um, during college. And he began or started a program called Engage with, which is basically um, an organization that will allow people to, uh, allow easy accessibility to, um, for, for athletes or for anybody to really book like book spe uh, um, speaking events or just events in general. So he's kind of made it easier for, um, for again, athletes, even like famous people to be booked for, for again, for speaking events or for whatever kind of event it is for philanthropic events, stuff like that. Because when he, when his fame kind of grew, when people wanted to kind of talk to him, interview him about his story, he noticed that it was very, very difficult for people, for himself with a visual impairment to, you know, send it through emails, to have to text all the time in separate, in separate text chains, that kind of thing. So he created this purposefully uh, to make it easier for people like him and just athletes in general. So again, it's called Engage. And yeah, that's something that he created as well, which is honestly incredible that he took the initiative to make it, to make something that was difficult for him easier, which I find incredible as well, but. Absolutely. And over the course of that interview that I cited with uh, heavy hitter sports, he mentioned an athlete named Chris O'Dowd as being one of the gentlemen that he looked up to from a sports perspective. Now, Chris O'Dowd was a five-star recruit from Tucson, Arizona. Went to South Point Catholic High School. Actually, when I was an undergrad, I wrote a profile about him and his impending collegiate decision. So you've got this guy who's a five-star, all-world offensive lineman and an inspiration to young Jake. Now, because of injuries that Chris O'Dowd suffered during his days at USC, he wasn't actually able to make a go of it at the 
NFL level or even the next level beyond that. And Jake mentions that Chris went through some dark days, went through some difficult times. And Chris actually solicited advice, wisdom, and inspiration from Jake. And during this trying time, Chris O'Dowd really leaned on some of the lessons that he had learned while being around Jake Olson at USC. So I think that is a remarkable story that you have this, again, five-star recruit. He was a top 20 guy in the entire country. He could have gone anywhere he wanted and he chose to go to USC and he was well on his way to being a first round NFL draft pick selection because of injuries. It didn't go that way. And when he was in his moment of need, who did he turn to? Jake Olson. So it's because of Jake Olson's resolve, resilience, and insistence on accomplishing the things that he wants to accomplish in life that we have chosen to enshrine Jake Olson in our Handprints Hall of Fame. Absolutely. All right, John, that was a great way to close that segment out. We'll move on to our next segment, Profiles and Courage, where we're actually going to be interviewing a fellow Quinnipiac student, another member of Melody Media, Grace McGuire, who's actually studying abroad in Spain right now. Grace, thank you for being here with us today. How are you doing? Of course, I'm doing well. How about you? Doing great, doing great. Thank you. So I want to start off, obviously, again, you're in Spain right now. You're studying abroad. How have the experience has been for you so far? Spain itself is beautiful, but as I wrote in an article for Ability Media, there's been a lot of sort of um, unforeseen challenges. And I found that Spain is not as, as accessible as I found the Quinnipiac campus and just the U.S. in general. Okay, and could you elaborate a little bit on the article and just some of the challenges that you have faced and, you know, what you've had to deal with kind of over in Spain? Okay, I think one of the basic things is all the cobblestone streets, they're harder to walk on. And I noticed a lot of people um, here have canes and everything, but uh, everyone who has a wheelchair I know must have a much harder time getting around. And this is a city that I'm in, I'm in Sevilla, so everyone walks um, to get places, but it, it's harder to get around. And one of the main things I focus on in the article is that we went, we've gone to a lot of like historic sites. We've gone to um, monuments that are very popular, tourist attractions, but to get to the places with the best views, um, it's not accessible. For example, we walked to the top of a cathedral and you could have a whole view of Sevilla and you had to climb like 36 high steep ramps that were um, hard to walk up and another flight of stairs was impossible for anyone in a wheelchair to get up there to see the view. Hey, Grace, John Steinberg here. Um, so uh, you, are dealing with cerebral palsy. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So in general, the way in which people in Spain, people in Europe more broadly, how have you found the experience of just sort of being out in society, in the public, and the way in which people treat you in Spain versus uh, the United States? You kind of just alluded to it's a little bit better in the U.S. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, actually, so um, I would say my cerebral palsy is like mild compared to other cases. Like I, the, uh, I don't really 
use assistive devices usually. I only brought my crutches here because I knew how much walking I would do. So on the Quinnipiac campus, I don't even um, bring a crutch, but here I do. And I think the people have been very kind. You know, they see the crutch and they obviously see that you need help. And so the people themselves have been very um, kind in like reaching out and making sure um, if, if I need help with anything, for example, like I was at Starbucks yesterday and they handed me my tray and it's hard to carry things when um, one hand is occupied with a crutch. So the waiter offered to carry my tray to my table. So the people themselves are nice. Just the, the place um, is not accessible in itself. I hear you. You know, as someone, um, I have a, a visual impairment and there's this museum, we're in Los Angeles, Grace. There's this museum mm -hmm. called the Peterson Automotive uh, Museum on, uh, well, Museum Row. And it's just crammed with all these classic antique cars and cars from old movies, etc. And I went there by myself and I asked to take the tour. And they said, well, we don't, we don't offer a tour. So, okay, well, do you have uh, any type of listening device that maybe I could utilize where, you know, you put a show button and mm -hmm. it dictates information out to you and blank faces. So, mm -hmm. I mean, this is something that, yeah, we are definitely dealing with in the United States. Uh, so what do you think maybe some solutions could be to some of the problems that you identified in your fantastic article? I would urge any, <laughs> all of our listeners to check it out through Ability Media. Um, but solutions like the um, the church that you brought up in uh, Toledo and getting up to it and what are some steps that maybe the folks in Spain could take in order to better serve uh, the larger disabled community? Yeah, I think, I mean, some simple steps would just be to add railings and add elevators like um, the school I'm at right now, like we have stairs and we have an elevator, but the stairs barely have a railing, so they're hard to get up if you don't want to use the elevator, and then the elevator is just out of the way. But I think it's interesting, especially for Europe, because there are like so many very historic, very old sites, like places from the 1400s that we visited. Um, but I don't know how much you can change like the architecture of the place to make it more accessible without like compromising the structure of it all. So um, a simple solution for the tower in Sevilla would be to add railings or to add an elevator. But um, I think a lot of people are so prideful of the historic site and how long it's stayed up there that um, they don't wanna change it. But I think there needs to be more of a conversation about people's disabilities, especially like you were saying for people who are guiding tours or are in museums, like um, they should, realize that some people on these tours or some people that they're helping have these disabilities and they may need extra help. Definitely. My other question for you, um, you know, obviously you said that, you know, I know on Quinnipiac, at Quinnipiac, when I see you walking around or I've been with you, I know that you don't typically use your crutches when you're at Quinnipiac. Mm -hmm. And I know you said you brought them to Spain just in case. Did you go into this study abroad program kind of expecting to face some challenges with the sites that you were going to visit? Or was this something that was kind of unexpected and, you know, you were kind of shocked by it when you when you arrived at these different these different sites and activities? So definitely, I know my walking endurance is not a, as uh, I can't walk for as long distances as other people. I know a statistic for um, cerebral palsy is that it takes three to five times the amount of effort for me to do a physical activity than the average person. So um, 
like at home, I would use my crutches if I was going hiking or something. So that was just kind of like a preparatory step. I didn't expect to be using them as much as I do. Now I don't go anywhere without my crutch. And before I was just thinking it would be like when I would go on an excursion with my program. Um, but now it's interesting because the people here, they don't know me without the crutch. And I, as I said, my article had kind of just become the girl with the crutch. Um, and so I was expecting some problems because I know um, my program lets us go on all of these excursions. So for example, this weekend, we're in an extra Madura and we're going on a five hour long hike. I know I'm gonna struggle with that hike. I don't think I will be going on that hike, but it was like those little things, um, for example, that that's why I brought my crutch, um, but I definitely wasn't expecting to use it this much. So in your life as you are dealing with the, uh, the cerebral palsy and not allowing it to dictate the trajectory that your life is to take, are there mm -hmm. any, who are your inspirations? Maybe people that you look to, if you've had tough times, people you think about, oh, well, okay, if they could do it, maybe I, you know, I can do it as well. Or if there are any books or uh, music, poetry, films, any type of, um, media like that, that have maybe helped you out along the way, navigate your own life? Mm -hmm. I feel like in, um, this year and like last year have been the first time I kind of really identified with my disability and come to terms with it. And actually um, during a talk when Eric Davis, an autistic journalist came to Quinnipiac um, last semester and I interviewed him for Ability Media and he was talking about uh, how important it was to see people with disabilities in the media. Um, and he recommended some shows. And so I started watching a Netflix a show called Special, which um, is produced by somebody with cerebral palsy and tells his story. And he's also the main actor in it. So I started watching that. Um, but before, actually last year, I didn't really have any um, movies or shows or people with cerebral palsy to look up to. So it's, it's kind of sad realizing how little representation um, there is. And that's why we need organizations like Ability Media to show more representation. Definitely, definitely. And uh, what is it that uh, you are, like from a career standpoint, what do you, what do you want to do in life? I know it's a, it's a big <laughs> question, but um, yes. yeah, what, what, are you, what are you studying and uh, what, what's kind of the next step in, in your own uh, journey? I want, I'm interested in investigative journalism. I don't know if like I want to do a podcast or I want to do more writing, but I think this experience where I'm coming again, as I said, I'm coming to terms with my disability more. I think I won't be scared to focus more on the disabled community and um, bringing accessibility to, to like the forefront of conversation. Um, this summer I'm going to be interviewing with, uh, I'm going to be interning with Achilles Media. Um, which we've worked with before in Connecticut, they kind of um, focus on adaptive sports. And so I'm going to be a journalist for them and like feature the athletes and feature the events they're doing. So um, be part of the disabled community and bringing representation yet again. Um, so that's what I'll be doing <laughs> soon. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, awesome, awesome, awesome. Awesome. My final question before we let you go um, again for 
I know obviously accessibility in Spain was not what you expected. And even in the United States, there are certain areas that are lacking in accessibility for the disabled community. What do you hope to see? I guess, again, probably like a loaded question, but going forward, let's you know put a timeline on it, maybe five to 10 years or so. What do you hope to see in the, in the accessibility world, adaptive sports, all that kind of stuff? What do you hope to see in terms of improvements and growth from that community? I think it's hard to picture like um, physical concrete changes around like in the, in the community. Um, but I really just want more conversation, more open conversation. And I don't want there to be a stigma and even fear about talking about disability. I think there are a lot of labels when it comes to disabilities and illness in general that people are scared of saying or using. Um, and a lot of, I guess they view disabilities as like loaded words. And so um, people don't like talking about it. But at the end of the day, I think it's like a quarter of our, our US population faces disabilities. So it's important that we talk about it and we talk about our day-to-day -day lives because then we'll realize that we're not um, completely different than ever, the average person. So I think we should just, we need more um, conversations and the best way to do that is to get more media representation. Definitely more conversation for sure. Thank you, Grace, so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. We appreciate you telling your story. And again, John, like you said, if you haven't read her article, go check it out at Ability Media's website. Um, it's a great article. There's more articles on there just about the disabled community and everything going on in that community. So please uh, check us out there. John, if you want to say anything else. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us, Grace. Oh, okay, L last thing before uh, I let you go. <laughs> okay. Your highlight, your Spanish highlight. Um, the coolest thing you've I seen think... or, or done. Uh, a couple of weekends ago, we went to Cadiz, which was a lot of beaches, and it was very, very nice. Awesome. <laughs> Since then, we've had a lot of rainy weather, so it's been very nice. Awesome. Thank you. All right, Grace, thank okay. you so Thanks much. so much. We really appreciate it. Have a good one. Of course. Thanks for holding this conversation. All right. Thank you, Grace, so much for coming on the show. John, that was a great interview. Great way to close that segment out. We'll move on to our next segment, Respect and Representation in the Media. We will be analyzing the movie uh, Blind starring Alec Baldwin. It was made in 2017. So, John, uh, tell us a little bit about the movie and what you thought about it. How did it represent blindness? All that. This was a Santino pick. Yeah. And I was I was grateful. This is not a movie that I had seen. And well, OK, some basics. The film stars Alec Baldwin as a as an author who has recently been in a car accident that has left him blind, and it actually took the life of his late wife. When we meet Alec's character, whose name is Bill Oakland, he is at some kind of a facility where he receives round-the-clock uh, care from staff members. It's called, it's just to mention, it's called the Beacon of the Blind. Okay. Yes, that was really, that's what the place was called, but yeah. Gotcha. Um, and he has earned this reputation as being cantankerous, uh, difficult, somebody that the staff know to sort of treat with a little bit of reluctance because he, like Frank Slade, instead of a woman, really has uh, a mind of his own and a mind that doesn't necessarily adhere to the bounds of quote-unquote good taste. Now, we also meet a couple, Demi Moore and Dermot Mulroney. No, 
I did the Saturday Night Live thing. It's Dylan McDermott. Okay. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Dylan McDermott and Demi Moore are a couple. And it comes to life that Dermot Mulroney, who is seemingly a busy businessman earning a great deal of money, they seem to be living quite the high life, uh, that he has a number of skeletons in his closet. Through a number of things that come out in the first roughly 20 minutes of the movie, he is dealing with law enforcement, financial crimes, and his wife, Demi Moore, is actually sentenced to 100 hours worth of community service as a penalty for their white-collar crimes. So she goes to this beacon of the blind where she meets Bill Oakland, Alec Baldwin, and she begins reading to him. She gets to know him, gets to know kind of his vibe and what he's all about. And wouldn't you know it, a romance develops between the two. And Dylan McDermott is not okay with this. A kerfuffle ensues, conflict, struggle. And then there is a resolution at the end. But it's really more of a character piece with Alec Baldwin's Bill Oakland and Demi Moore's Suzanne as the titular characters by which the story can be analyzed. So, Santino, how did you feel about the depiction of, uh, of blindness in this one? Um, again, from an outsider perspective, I thought it actually did a really good job from watching you know, the entire movie. I thought Alec Baldwin did a very good job in the role. And I, I actually had the same thought that you did um, when, I, when they initially introduced Bill Oakland, when Gavin O'Connor was the initial... Um, excuse me, the initial volunteer to, re to read the stories to Bill Oakland. He gave the same kind of vibe that Colonel Frank Slade did of just coming off as braze, coming off as frankly rude, just like not like a, not a very nice guy. And they, I think they purposefully did that. And again, it was to show that this guy's a person, this guy has vices. He's not this sweet, loving, nurturing guy that I guess people would picture uh, somebody with visual impairments to be. And I thought in that respect, it kind of did the same thing as Sense of a Woman, just in that respect of the character. But, you know, I, I like, and uh, to, to touch on again, I, Bill Oakland was not always blind. He went blind after a, a car accident, which actually uh, left his, uh, his wife died in the car accident. He went blind from it. And something they mentioned in the movie also is that he's not, so he can see uh, blur, like blurs of colors and shapes, but if you try to, um, like make hand gestures or hand signals to him. He won't be able to make those out. So he is blind, but he can, I guess, still kind of see some, like somewhat like a little bit of color in the world, which is interesting to, what was interesting to kind of hear. But um, the scene that kind of really, I think about was when Suzanne comes to, comes to his home and essentially tells him like, it's over. I can't do this anymore. I'm a married woman after her husband uh, eventually gets out of jail and he um, is acquitted of all the charges that were against him. She, Suzanne goes to end, I guess, the relationship or whatever they had at the time. And Bill leaves his home and, you know, wanting to get, wanting to run after Suzanne, he tosses his cane to the side and he starts running after her and he gets hit by a taxi when he runs into the middle of the street because obviously he can't see it. And that scene to me was just, was, was incredible because again, despite the fact that he was blind, he had so much care for this woman. He loved her so much, or he, he grew to love her so much that he was willing to 
just say, screw it. And again, tossed his cane. And again, despite the fact of being blind, he just, he didn't care. It was just it that 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 wasn't what mattered to him anymore. It was just about getting getting to Suzanne and being with her. That was what was most important to him at the time. But overall, I thought the movie did a really good job. I liked the scenes in uh, when they were at the beacon um, beacon for the blind. And I forget the character's name, but the woman who was kind of like, who was who worked at the desk and was kind of his um, not his caretaker, but she 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 was the main she was the person that worked at the, at, at the facility. And when she would introduce when she was introducing Suzanne to Bill, she was kind of explaining to her, um, you know, don't use words like see or have you seen or you know uh, like did you, oh did you see the game last night things like that like don't use those kind of phrases. And she was kind of not not necessarily coaching, but just giving her tips of what not to do around him to make him uncomfortable or that could be taken as I guess offensive. But again, overall, I thought the movie did a great job. I'm curious what you thought if you thought I did a good job. Um, but yeah, I I definitely thought I did pretty good. Well, it's interesting that you brought up that particular scene. That was one that certainly stuck out to me. The one in which Demi Moore is more or less being debriefed on here's what to do around Bill, here's what not to do around Bill. And I suppose you could say, well, this is a natural thing to do for anyone who's going into a meeting of any kind, just to tell them a little bit about who are they going to be meeting with and maybe what to avoid, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know, I came off a little bit patronizing, like, well, let's give her some some agency here. Like, I I think she's probably intelligent enough to go without saying something out and out, you know, offensive. Like, she'll she'll be able to figure out. I, I don't know that we need this little pep talk beforehand, but... Casting that to the side, some of my thoughts are kind of not related to the depiction of blindness here. And they're more about like, well, when we cast Alec Baldwin and Demi Moore, who are arguably more famous for their lives off the screen than on, and Santino, it's got to be like a battle of the deep voices between yeah. those two. Yeah. It's just a uh, an auditory symphony listening to Demi Moore and Alec Baldwin have a conversation. Definitely. But again, like because Alec Baldwin is such a public figure, I mean, he played the former president on Saturday Night Live for X amount of years. Yeah. Demi Moore, I can't help but recall times when my mom would bring home copies of Us Weekly. When I was a kid, she'd bring them home and her and Bruce Willis would be all over the front pages of tabloids and then her marriage to Ashton Kutcher. Basically, it's probably not fair to bring in all those outside associations, but Alec Baldwin and Demi Moore, it's, you know, it's asking a lot for an audience to really truly go with the story because it's Alec Baldwin as in the Comedy Central roast of Alec Baldwin for you know, being, having a certain type of personality, shall we say. But what he does is he does kind of an Al Pacino here where the performance is so broad, loud, kind of in your face that he's trying to challenge you to avoid thinking of him as the guy who played uh, Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live and all of that. Yeah. Little distracting, little distracting. But in terms of the presentation of actual blindness, there's a scene in which Bill Oakland and Jimmy Moore are out for a walk and they go through a park Mm -hmm. and he hears uh, a group of kids, teenagers, youths uh, playing football. 
He goes, oh, I love football. I'd love to go and participate. Yeah. And Demi Moore, no, no, no. Yeah. And then he chucks his cane to the side, scurries out onto the field, except that he runs into a tree. Yep. Which is something that's happened to me, uh, for sure. And even though it's kind of sold as something of a pratfall, it's true. It does happen. Hey, we can't really see. And if you throw that cane to the side, uh, you're kind of taking your eyes away. So you will absolutely run into things like a tree or a lamppost or a fire hydrant. Yeah, that will happen. That's what the cane is there for. Yeah. Overall, though, I thought a pretty responsible, inspired depiction of blindness. And like we enjoy pointing out, the story doesn't treat him as a cute, cuddly little panda. He's got problems with alcohol. Clearly, he has difficulty with interpersonal relationships, and he doesn't seem to respect the sanctity of marriage, which is not the greatest of human qualities, but it's an authentic portrait of a flawed human being, blind or otherwise. And so that is always something that I think we both appreciate. Exactly. And I, again, I think now, you know, not everything in the movie, because again, like you said, for me, again, from an outsider perspective, when she was debriefing Suzanne, even Gavin, when Gavin was originally the first, um, the first, I guess, helper or person that was reading to, uh, to Bill, when she was debriefing the two of them, in my opinion, I thought that it was kind of, because it was almost similar, not exactly the same, but almost similar in a way when um, Charlie was kind of, when Charlie was being told kind of what Colonel Frank Slade does, like what, you know, again, what to do, what not to do, that kind of thing. I feel like it was almost similar to that, maybe not exactly the same. So I didn't think that was like totally, I guess, if you want to say off book or totally, you know, not, I guess, not, not accurate. Um, you know, if you want to say that, but overall, like you said, I think the movie did do a very, very good job of depicting blindness. They were very responsible. Like you said, they, um, they were very accurate. I think they, they did their due diligence in prepping and prepping or in Alec Baldwin prepping for the role and just the writers and the directors prepping Alec Baldwin and just the cast in general, I think overall did a great job. It was very, very responsible. Um, is there anything else to say? I think that then that'll wrap up uh, this segment. Well, I mean, yeah. I just thought it was interesting that, uh, the film was written by Norman Mailer's son, and it was directed by another one of his sons, uh, Norman Mailer, one of the literary titans of the 20th century, yeah. famous for the Executioner's Song, uh, The Naked and the Dead. Uh, I mean, he's won two Pulitzer Prize awards. And uh, it was just interesting seeing John Buffalo Mailer as the screenwriter and Michael Mailer as, uh, as the director. I was not aware that they were in movies in the entertainment industry. And so it got me down a whole rabbit hole of like, oh, well, okay, what else have they done? Yeah. Like, why this story? And mm -hmm. so that all was uh, just kind of an added bonus. And, and then the title, the title is Blind. I don't know. I mean, we could maybe add a word to that or. Yeah, I, I, I would have, I, I'd agree with you on that. I think that having having just the word blind, it's like, you know, when we would have... I, I, Seems I like a placeholder. Yeah, me. I don't know what they were trying to go with there because, again, like, I feel like, and I'm speculating, but if they if their goal was to, like, okay, like, let us know, like, what the, 
what the, the story, like what the story of the movie was, or like what one of like you know, I mean, we would have been able to figure it out, obviously, in the movie. So I don't, I, again, I don't think they put much thought into the title. Honestly, you're just gonna put the word. Blo- I feel like it was just kind of all right. Like it's like a placeholder that wound up becoming the permanent. Yeah, title. yeah, maybe I guess. I, again, again, I don't know. We don't know what other ideas they had, if there were any, regardless. But we could. If we had one qualm about it, we could say that the title was lacking a little bit in comparison to other movies we've analyzed, but we digress. All right, we'll move on to our final segment, Connecting the Dots. John, what are you gonna talk about today? Santino, have you ever heard of the sport goalball? I have not heard of that sport, John. Well, my, my, my friend, let me tell you. So in 2017, I hadn't heard of the sport either. I had no conception that there was out there in the world, the sport called goalball designed for the visually impaired. Now it was during my time at the Hatland Center, Northern California, an institution that I've referenced in a number of prior episodes of the show that I discovered this fantastic sport specifically designed for the visually impaired community. Here's the kind of basic outline of what it is. Three play, you play it in most commonly a gymnasium, like a volleyball court. You have two teams, three members on each team. The goal is to throw. It's basically a basketball with bells inside of it. You are aiming to quote unquote score a goal. And you achieve that by throwing this ball and having it hit the back wall of um, your opponent's quote unquote goal. Each goal counts for a point. There are two halves in the game and you can protect your goal by any means necessary. So I show up to this volleyball court in Berkeley and almost immediately I was instructed, okay, you need to lay flat on your back, but then fold out your arms. Okay, so is this is this like a am I stretching yeah. for the sport or like is this the again? I was completely ignorant. I had no idea what was uh, on the imminent horizon. So no, please fold out your arms. Those are your lines of defense. So what you're trying to do is stop the ball from penetrating your portion of the court. You can move from side to side. You can move backward, forward but you're just able to cover more ground by kind of laying flat on your back and spreading out your arms as far as you can. Yeah. And you use all the tools at your disposal to be able to lend the greatest hand to your team as possible. So using what you can hear, the bells inside of this converted basketball, you listen as that ball goes to and fro. Where is it? Is it to my left? Is it to my right? And then you adjust your posture and your place on the court so as to better align with where you think the ball is going to go. And you always have to coordinate with teammates so you don't have folks running into one another. But this sport that I had no idea even existed turned out to be something of a revelation. Now, I wish that I could tell you that this first entree into the world of goalball led me down a path where by I would wind up a really successful thriving goalball player. Alas, that is not something that happened. But on that night at this 
gymnasium in Berkeley, I was able to meet with a couple members of the American goalball team that actually represented the United States at the most recent, at the time, the most recent Paralympic Games in Rio de Janeiro. So I was able to ask, you know, okay, what was it like? And I remember asking the objectively dumb question, so who's like the Michael Jordan of goalball to a gentleman <laughs> that I happened to be around? And he kind of stopped for a moment. He's like, well, it's probably me. And it turned out I was chatting with a gentleman who was the captain of the American goalball team that did uh, really well that's, that's in cool, yeah. the Rio Olympics. And this is something that, so the sport was invented in the 1940s overseas in Austria, actually. And it was initially conceived as a form of rehabilitation for people coming back from injuries to ligaments and uh, to their arms, shoulders, that kind of thing, to build up strength uh, in their upper body as they came back to full health. The sport went global in the 1970s where it debuted on the international stage in, I believe it was the 1976 Paralympics. And it has been featured in every subsequent Paralympics after that. And uh, it's actually played in roughly 81 countries. And there are roughly 200 and there are over 200 referees who capably call the game around the country and around the globe. But my experience with goalball just goes to show when you think you know everything, it turns out you know nothing. Humility is always going to serve you best in life. So my ignorance to the mere existence of goalball, I felt like a dummy, I don't mind saying, when everyone at the Hatland Center knew what the game was and how to play it and uh, where to join a league. And I didn't even know that it was a sport, period. So when in doubt, say, I know nothing. And then the answers will start to come. Yeah, and I, I think it's honestly kind of, the, the thing that stuck out to me of all things that's kind of funny is the fact that like you asked me, like, who's the Michael Jordan of goalball? And you were kind of, you were speaking to the guy that, 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 that essentially like was the equivalent, which was, which was crazy in my opinion. But um, one of the questions I'd have for you just about the sport in general and your experiences how can you like elaborate more on how you came to, to, to fully like find out about the sport and what made you interested in wanting to try it out? So there were roughly 20 to 25 other students uh, when I was a participant at the program at the Hatland Center. And it was something that was common knowledge with what seemed like everyone else. I don't know if that's accurate, but it seemed that way at the time. The first moment when I heard about it, it was presented to me as, do you play goalball? And I remember asking uh, the girl who told me what the sport was, like, what? what? Could you repeat yourself? Goalball. Mm -hmm. Do you play goalball? I said, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And she had to say, well, listen, it's this uh, sport. It's designed for the blind. Uh, it's really fun. It's a great way to get out there and be active while competing and your visual impairment is not going to be a hindrance at all. I had no idea what it was, but if you're somebody who attended uh, California School for the Blind or 
other schools for the blind around the country and around the world, then I'd imagine, yeah, they're going to tell you about it when, I think when you're in about elementary school, uh, definitely by middle school. But I was somebody who was very ignorant of it and excited uh, to learn about this great new sport. That's awesome that you were able to honestly just, again, find something new within your life. And the fact that, again, it is difficult, obviously, for people with visual impairments to play other sports such as football, uh, basketball, et cetera, baseball, soccer, all those different sports. But that's cool, honestly, that you got to find a sport that, excuse me, you were able to play that was, you know, again, accessible for you and all the students that were at that, uh, what was it called again? The, the, the Hatland Center. The Hatland Center, yeah. 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 The, you and all the, stu- uh, the students that were there were able to have that game that you guys could play together and really enjoy and just, again, be active, which probably was difficult for, it probably is difficult for people with visual impairments because, again, they, they can't see. It's hard for them to be able to go for a run from, you know, again, like we, we talked about in the movie, um, the movie Blind, when Alec Baldwin tosses his cane and just goes for a run, the odds are without your, without the cane or whatever, guide dog, whichever you use, there is a chance you will run into, I, I use example, you use examples of a fire hydrant, uh, you know, a, a lamppost, anything like that, that you might run into something. So to have something you guys could really use to be active, to just, again, enjoy yourself, have fun, kind of be competitive. It's, it, 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 that's great. It's amazing. And to link it up with our discussion on Profiles and Courage with Grace, she spoke about the need for adaptive resources to help out the disabled. Sometimes those resources exist even if we don't hear about them all the time. With games, with a visual impairment, stuff like Monopoly, Scrabble, it's it's harder. It's, it's for sure harder. Video games are kind of off the table. So when people want to yeah, have fun and play these games, like, well, okay. All right. I mean, trivial pursuit, I guess, but you yeah. know, not everyone loves that. And so without knowing it, there was this game goalball that, that existed there. There was a kind of solution or workaround. The chances are that if you're somebody struggling with a disability and you have a concern like, how come there are no games that I can play? Chances are that somebody has probably had this thought before you. And moreover, there's probably been some kind of solution established to be able to cater to that. Mm-hmm. It could be as easy as typing in sports for the blind or what are some games that blind people can play? Or if you want to, swap that out for the partially for the deaf community i'm sure there are other examples of such games that uh, can best be played by those in the deaf community just look we're about finding solutions here we're about maximizing your life in every way conceivable so if you're somebody who feels like you're being left out uh when your friends, your parents, your brother, sister, your relatives are all playing Nintendo Wii or Super Mario Kart. Tell them about goalball. Tell them about other avenues uh, that are more friendly to the disabled community that you can also participate in. Uh, looking for solutions, looking to improve. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's really what we're all about here. Definitely. Visionaries. And- 
and it's another example of adaptive sports with uh, it's reminds me of like the nonprofit that I've written about um, angel city sports, whose focus is to provide free equipment and adaptive sports for people, you know, in the, in the disabled community, whether it's visual impairments, uh, hearing impairments, you know, any people in the disabled community in general. So I like talking about this, it again, reminds me of, you know, I went to an event that uh, it was a wheelchair football championship league game. It was an event during uh, Super Bowl week. I went to a uh, open uh, bat, uh, open gym, like wheelchair basketball event. So this kind of kind of falls in that in that realm of just creating adaptive sports and you know having something that can be accessible for anybody and everybody. And that is the whole point, especially with sports, is that people just want to play sports. They want to do like have play different activities, do different activities. That is the whole point of it. Creating opportunities, making things easier. Again, like you said, that is the goal of us and just, you know, the world in general. That is that is the goal. And it's nice to see that you had something like that goal ball that was able to accomplish that. And it does demonstrate the need for initiation. Uh, we talk about being a self-starter. No one is going to come to your place of residence, knock on the door or press the doorbell and say, hey, 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 um, you want to come out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're playing over at uh, UCLA. So so come out. We're going to play a goal ball. That's yeah. not going to happen. So it is incumbent upon all of us to take the initiative, find these sorts of outlets, and then tap into those resources and make the most of them. But it all does kind of start with that essential act of what can I find? I'm going to find something. And then it's just a matter of- You go from there. Yeah, yeah, it's a matter of legwork after that. Definitely. All right, that was a great, great segment. Love the back and forth discussion that we had there. Um, Again, thank you guys for listening to another episode of Visionaries. Uh, If you want to go, please follow us at our Instagram at visionaries underscore podcast. And again- If you want to send us a DM, let us know any suggestions you have, anything you want us to cover, anything you guys want to say to us at all, shoot us a DM. We are, we were happy, happy to receive them. Um, Yeah. And just thank you for listening again, John, if you want anything else you want to say, but yeah. uh, After this episode, this is the last episode that I will ever record as uh, a single, I mean, I'm not single, but as a, uh, a non-married person, Uh, my wedding is on Saturday and it's uh it's here. It's yeah, here. For sure. So, for sure. Yeah. Anyway, but thank you everyone for listening. Hope you have a great week and looking forward to further correspondence on this, our podcast, Visionaries. Thank you guys.